back to another one of our podcasts. Um, our guest this evening happens to be the city coordinator for Tampa's Pint of Science events from this year. She's also a research associate at Moffitt Cancer Centre here in Tampa. And her name is Kim Luddy. Hey, Kim. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Also well. The reason why you're here is because obviously we want to hear a little bit about your background and what you do as a scientist. So tell us how you got into what you do. Uh, my story is not really traditional academia story. Um, I'm more of a mailroom kind of climb the, the ladder, for lack of a better phrase, um, in that uh, I was initially going to school for marine biology. It was kind of all I ever wanted to do growing up. And um, while I was finishing up my last year uh, in the marine biology program, I was doing an internship and my, um, I was having some medical issues, and my primary care referred me to Moffitt to have some tests done. And I was one of those very fortunate people that left Moffitt with the benign diagnosis. And of course, instantly, when I, when I heard the news, I was relieved. But it was very quickly afterwards that I had, um, I guess what you would call survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this isn't really fair. I get to walk out of here and live a life of scuba diving, coral reefs, and looking around, and leaving all these people behind. And so... Um, Something just within about the next week, I went down to the office um, at USF, and I changed my major, and I changed everything that I was planned on doing, and decided I wanted to be at Moffitt. Um, however, my skills that I had at the time weren't really very valuable. You know, knowing whether it's a long polyp stony or a short polyp stony reef uh, doesn't really help anyone in a Moffitt <laughs> lab. So I didn't really fit in anywhere. So I started volunteering in things like outpatient care and um, human resources where I kind of found my home. Because uh, I had done things like Excel spreadsheets, and I could, knew the alphabet, so filing came pretty <laughs> quick to me. And um, I started volunteering so much. I was about, I think it was about forty hours a week at one point. Oh wow! And so they said, "Okay, this is making us feel guilty. Can we please pay you to work here?" I said, "Okay, let's do that." <laughs> and so I spent, I don't know, maybe about two years doing human resource stuff, and um, it was a great gig in that. When you're filing, your brain is really free to do whatever it wants. Uh, although, hopefully I didn't misfile quite too many things. Mm-hmm. But the um, places like Howard Hughes Medical Center and um, Johns Hopkins had a lot of their lectures online. So I was able to get things like immunology and genetic engineering and all of these kind of free lectures online. So while I'm filing, I've got my headphones in and I'm just kind of trying to teach myself these things uh, while attending a few classes at USF and, and working in human resources. And I also was stalking the recruiter for uh, research jobs. So anytime a research job came up, I was right there. Am I right, am I right for it? Uh, they want someone green? Do they want someone green? And um, eventually there was a job in a lab. And it was a dry lab, and I started, I did about six months mm-hmm. before I had my f- real introduction to academia, and that the lab closed because of funding. <laughs> and no one even told me. Oh, so ouch. I walk in, yeah, and the lab was the, completely cleaned out. And uh, I was pretty upset. Fortunately, um, one of the big wigs at Moffitt took me, um, took pity on me, and decided to pay my salary to work in a lab. So I worked in Dr. Scott Antonio's lab. Following that, and that's where I got all my immunology uh, training. And um, Dr. Um, Terry Hunter and David Noyes really just taught me how to pipette and do flow and what a T cell was, and just the beauty of immunology, which was and- cool. Having got to where you are now, you actually feel like you want to go a little bit beyond that. And I know that you're going to start a master's course in Ireland, which you're very excited about. How did that come about? Um, So as a lot of things in my life these days, actually it came about through Twitter. (laughs) So I was looking for a program um, in immunology. Uh, I knew I wanted to leave the States and kind of broaden um, my horizons and get a different perspective on tumor immunology. 
And uh, Trinity has a, a program, and they were advertising it on, or someone had tweeted about it, I believe, on Twitter. And I said, well, maybe. And about three years later, it's when it finally, the maybe turned into a, now I found a place to live, now I have a school for my kids, and we'll be moving in August. And what will you be doing the master's? What's the basic focus of this particular course? So this is a, a pure immunology master's. So um, I get to focus on viruses and bacteria and uh, move away from tumors for a little while to, to kind of change my perspective. Okay. On that subject, given that the immune system is like this hideously complex subject. <laughs> no! Um, no hideous. Why don't you give us a little pricey as to what the immune system does for us? Okay, well, in general, the immune system is the only reason you're here, right? <laughs> so we would not survive going to the grocery store and sharing carts or sharing an Uber or any of these things if we didn't have the immune system to really fight off this onslaught of bacteria and viruses that, that really are everywhere. Um, your skin is part of your immune system, right? Your mucus, anything is part of your immune system that keeps bacteria and viruses and other pathogens from, from really invading your cells. And so your immune system is, is crucial to... Um, to keeping you healthy and to keeping you from falling ill to any little thing that comes along. You've said you've been working at Moffitt in labs for quite some time now. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the research that you do there. Uh, well, I first started um, working in what's called a translational immunology lab. So that basically means that our work uh, translates pretty quickly from um, what we call bench to bedside. So it goes from our research and goes into the clinic and comes back. So we had a lot of things like vaccine development where we would develop an immunotherapy and then we would move it into the clinic, we'd run the clinical trial and then all of the, um, all the patient samples would come back to us and we'd run them in the lab and we'd inform the clinical trial and what, what was working and what wasn't working and so it was a real, um, what felt really relative lab. Um, and then I've moved on to Dr. Gatenby's lab. I was really drawn to the evolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. And um, the immune system is a very dynamic system. And that's kind of the beauty of immunotherapy is that as the tumor evolves and changes, the immune system also has the ability to do that. So if we can really get the immune system keyed up to the tumor, um, as the tumor changes, the immune system will follow it and, and kind of hunt it down. And so when I heard about Dr. Gatemey, who does a lot of uh, evolutionary-minded uh, cancer therapy, I said, well, immunologists need him. Mm -hmm. um, we really need to, to look at the evolution of the tumor, evolution of resistance to different treatments. And so I just came to him kind of hat in hand and said, immunology needs you, and I kind of <laughs> think you need immunology. And um, I convinced him after a few months, and I think he still is, is dealing with it, but he's happy <laughs> I'm there, I suppose. So one of the curious things I find about this work is that the point of our immune system generally, as you said earlier, is to fight off foreign things. So how do you develop a therapy using the immune system, which, um, why would it target something that is a part of you? What is it about cancer cells that are special that you can use them to use immunotherapies to target them? Uh, so that's, that's a really great question. And actually why immunotherapy was, was really um, thought that it wouldn't work for a very long time because the tumor is obviously, it's your cells of yourself. And so the immune system is, is trained not to attack cells or you become very ill. But what happens in, in cancer is that you have a, a lot of different mutations. That's what allows the cell to kind of run rogue and take over different organs and in different environments. And these mutations are mutated proteins. And the immune system recognizes these proteins as foreign. 
Uh, and it's not as foreign as, say, a bacteria or a virus, uh, but it is still a foreign protein, and the immune system can recognize it, and with help from immunotherapies, it can really go and eradicate um, because the tumors aren't really self anymore. They're more like self-gone wild. Mm-hmm. So how do you do this in a practical sense? Like when you're, you're making a, a vaccine to something, you take a little bit of what ails you and you raise the antibodies to that. How do you do this with um, immunotherapies against cancer? Uh, so cancer immunotherapies are, are a little different in that we need to kind of get the adaptive arm of the immune system much, much stronger than, say, like the antibody arm of the immune system, right? So we need to get the, the anti-tumor response to go above and beyond, say, an antibody response. Um, Can you just explain the difference between adaptive and the... Okay, yes, sorry. So uh, antibody responses are adaptive in that they can have memory. Um, But a T-cell response is a specific set of immune cells that are kind of like the the predator dog. So they're the... They're the smart part of the immune system that can go out, hunt for a particular mutated protein, and kill any cell that expresses that protein. So they're very strong and they're very smart. And so in um, cancer immunology, we try to use those T cells to to go after the tumor. So what we can do is we can take different things like um, dendritic cell vaccines. So basically a dendritic cell is the helper to the T cell. So we use the analogy quite a bit. If you have um, if you have an attack dog, you need to send which scent to go after. And so the dendritic cells are the cells that are the police kind of holding holding the rag that has the scent mm-hmm. on it, showing it to the attack dogs and saying, "Okay, go get them." So what we do is we we take these dendritic cells, these policemen, and we educate them against whatever particular smell we want. So against the tumor, the tumor antigens, mm-hmm. the tumor, the mutated proteins in the tumor. And we inject these. We can inject these back, these uh, cells back into the body. They will go talk to the to the T cells, and then the T cells will go and hunt down the tumor. Okay, that's one type of vaccine that we use. Uh huh. That sounds very clever. Switching to questions from some of the folks we have here, actually, David read my mind with this one. So he said, "Is immunotherapy a silver bullet against cancer?" Or is it an incremental, meaning a little bit of improvement over what we have already? So that is definitely what current immunotherapies are. They're very small improvements um, in that we are still learning about the immune system. So uh, 20 years ago, we were using immunotherapies and they were failing. And now we're starting to figure out why. And it's not because the idea of using the immune system to fight the tumor isn't working. It's because we don't know enough yet. And it is a complex system. And there's, there's so much that we're learning. And it's not that we are thinking that immunotherapy is this, the next, um, is going to be the cure. What it is is that immunotherapy leaves the system with knowledge. So things like cytotoxic drugs like chemotherapy or radiation, once they're over, they leave the body, right? So once you're done having your chemo injected, your body cleans it out and, and the tumor's left to deal with, with nothing, basically. It's all been cleaned out. And so with immunotherapy, though, the cells are left behind, Mm-hmm. And these cells have memory. And so any time that the tumor either evolves or changes or tries to return, right, so you have, you have regression of the tumor, and then it starts to come back, the immunotherapies allow it to, um, to continue the body, to continue to fight way after the drugs are being administered. And so it's not that it's going to come to the tumor and it's just going to eradicate the tumor and there will be nothing left and you'll be totally cured. Mm-hmm. What it's probably going to do, at least in the, in the short term, is extend lives by, by years and decades which will be much nicer than what we're dealing with right now in that we have extra weeks and months. Yes, indeed. So is using the immune system fighting fire with fire and can it end up attacking our normal cells? Because this is a problem with 
the vast majority of therapies against cancer. Yes, yeah, so there is definitely quite a bit of fire, and, we, and we've had patients who, who have, have dealt with this. Um, a lot of the patients on immunotherapies have adverse events um, in that the immune system is, is turned on too strong and starts to attack self. Um, it, is an, it is an issue that we're trying to walk a fine line where we're still in the phase where we're thinking about like a maximum, maximum tolerated dose, like what they see with, with chemotherapy, and then try and, and bring it back down. Um, I think that the idea needs to be, instead of going for these maximum, maximum tolerated doses, is that we need to be more clever about how we're driving the evolution of the tumor. Mm-hmm. And so instead of fighting fire with fire, I'm thinking more that we're going to be fighting the fire with a match on this side to make it run the other way, a match on this side to make it run the other way, and just kind of bounce it back and forth so that we're not lighting the place on, you know, on fire and burning it to the ground, but we are controlling the other fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what do you think about this idea that potentially you don't need a cure and that you can um, effectively control the cancer so the patient is, um, they're basically in a state where they're, they're okay, they're surviving, but the cancer doesn't, doesn't go away? Okay, so this is my, I get asked this question quite a bit, and this is my particular take on on. Um, on the situation and that I was listening to a talk years ago and uh, and an oncologist who was talking about his patients on a particular trial and he was saying that what he considered to be a success was that his patients went on to be 90, 95 years old and died of a heart attack in their bed. Mm -hmm. To him, that was curing cancer, meaning the patient didn't die of cancer. Uh, and I, I took that to heart quite a bit because we have always been taught and even um, any fundraising campaign, anytime we talk to cancer patients, we think, oh, did you win the battle? Did you win the war? Mm-hmm. Did you beat your cancer? You know, we talk about remission and, and cure. And I think that not that it's something we can't do. I'm a very idealistic person, and I think that we can do anything as human beings. It's not that I think we can't do it. I just think it would be faster if we didn't try. Mm-hmm. If we just tried to extend people's lives so that they can go to the next wedding. You know, they can go to the next, uh, you know, their grandchildren's graduation. So that they can, they can live. I, I once wrote a practice uh, grant for mortality. And wow. so, <laughs> obviously, the, the, um, it was, the first few sentences were easy. You know, mortality affects 100% of people, and we should probably look at this because it's an issue. <laughs> and the reason why I did that is because I wanted to remind myself, you know, none of us are saving lives. We're extending lives. And I think once we kind of bring that, dial that down a bit, we can be a little more realistic and make a difference. Yeah. I think it's, it's very easy to jump on a bandwagon where you're saying cure and battle and the war on cancer and the fight and the survivor and so on um it's it's the kind of thing that, that's very easy to put on a banner or a slogan whereas you know just you know controlling and extending life and all this kind of thing is not quite so sexy yeah, i agree um so another one from david is there something in the market that can be used as the poster child for immunotherapy no no so other immunologists, other immunologists would not uh, really agree with me. So there's some current immunotherapies that are, are working really well in a very small subset of patients. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's the poster. I think it's more like the postcard. Okay. And that it means, hey, look, we've learned something new and it makes a difference. Let's learn more new things and make way more difference. Yeah. So are these treatments cheaper, the ones that are currently on the market? Oh, no. The expense of immunotherapies is profound right now. 
and it's one of the major issues that we're dealing with ethically is, um, you know, also in extending a life when they can't afford their home, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we really need to bring down the cost of immunotherapy and we really need to bring down the length of time that they're on these immunotherapies. We need to get them so that a shorter duration of treatment gives a much longer lasting effect. I think that is is as important as making them more effective mm-hmm. because I don't care if you have the silver bullet. Uh, if no one can afford it, then what is the point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I, I've never understood this. Presumably, even for drug companies, that doesn't make sense. If people can't afford to buy it, then how do they make their money? The problem with immunotherapies right now is that they're so different. You, it's not just you're taking a couple of you know molecules in a chemistry lab and you're putting them together. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these things are are raised in uh, kind of biological environments, and so yeah. they're also very expensive to make right now. So this kind of harks to personalized medicine as well. The idea that the treatment then fits the patient. Yeah, so, and immunotherapy has a lot of personalized medicine in it. We do personalized vaccines because your tumor will be different than my tumor. Um, and that becomes more expensive because you're talking about custom, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have my custom kitchen versus my off-the-shelf kitchen, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite a difference. And I know because I have the one off the shelf. Um, but personalized medicine is important, but it's exactly the same thing. We need yep. to figure out a way to be much more clever about how we manufacture, design, and sell these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that you're so passionate about working within cancer research and treating cancer and uh, you have this kind of very tangible connection to it, have you ever thought of becoming a physician? That's, that's a kind of a good question. So initially when I was very young, I thought, I'm going to be a doctor. I have terrible handwriting and I love science. What else could I possibly do? <laughs> you know, so it was doctor, fireman, you know, I didn't, you don't have a lot of choices when you're that young. And uh, so I was about 12 when I became a candy striper. So a volunteer mm-hmm. at a hospital. And I went into the first patient's room and poured them water and realized I'm not very comfortable on the bedside. Uh, after that, I started, I took an anatomy class. And I annoyed my teacher with, why? Why is it called that? Why does it do that? How? And he kept telling me, you just need to memorize it and stop bothering me. And I knew then that I was probably more of an academic than a physician. (laughs) That's quite a a thing to find out at such an age. So another one we have for you is immunotherapies are a hot topic right now. What's the biggest misunderstanding about them? Immunotherapies are are a very big topic, and the reason why is because we haven't had anything new in cancer in a very long time. Uh, targeted therapies have come around a bit, but even even them are they're just you know they're falling a bit short, and they're not that new either. Um, the misconception about immunotherapy is is mostly that people have this idea that we're just taking a natural system and turning against a natural thing that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it feels very holistic in a way in that yeah. we're just really taking nature and making it go against nature. But what we're doing is we're taking nature that's gone completely crazy, which is the tumor, and we're taking the immune system, which is just sitting quietly by, not doing what it's supposed to do. So we're taking two broken pieces of nature and... And manipulating them. It's not, it's not natural what we're doing. You know, putting a bunch of interleukin-2, which is um, an immune cell food that makes them go completely crazy, it's, it's not as natural as everybody thinks. And the side effects are, 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 pretty, are pretty profound for people. Yeah. So it's not like you're just going out and, and eating some herbs and, and, and getting better. It, it's, it's the people who take immunotherapies and deal with some of these events are dealing with just as much as people who are on chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Andrew would like to know... 
How does the recent approval of Imlegic, the oncolytic viral therapy, fit in with immunotherapy? And do you see a future for combining therapies? Oh, two very good questions. Thank you. <laughs> so oncolytic viral therapy is um, it's probably one of my favorites in that um, it falls into this group of treatments that has dual action. So um, oncolytic viral therapy is where we take a virus and we... We make it so that the patient isn't actually infected with the virus, mm-hmm. um, but that the virus goes and attacks only the tumor cells. And so it has this wonderful reaction of killing tumor cells. And when you kill a tumor cell, the immune system is alerted very quickly to come in and look, hey, there's some death, there's some inflammation, there's some things going on. We need to go sniff around and see what's going on. And so just by pure killing, the oncolytic viral therapy is very helpful. But also you're talking about putting a virus into the same environment that the tumor is in immune system also likes viruses a whole bunch and gets and gets really turned on by these viruses and does what it's supposed to do right and so oncolytic viral therapy is very immunogenic in that it's very immune system activating and anti-cancer and so as an immuno as an immunologist that's that's kind of a dual action i like Um, and the second part of the question was combination therapies and i absolutely believe that immunotherapy really any of the therapies um, need to be done in combination there's, there's a couple of different reasons. One is that you are, um, we're dealing with different modes of action of killing, right? So if you bring in a chemotherapy, you bring in a, a drug that's, that's poison, right? Poisons the, the cells, and they die. You come in with immunotherapy, then you have an active attacker of live cells. And so you're really hitting the cells from two different directions, right? So if you want to get rid of something, come at it from multiple, you know, multiple, multiple positions, um, and the other reason why I think that combinations are important is because evolution. It actually is a thing and it actually does happen. Is specifically in a tumor because you have these rapidly dividing, highly uh, mutational cells. And so as you give a treatment, like say a targeted therapy, right? So targeted therapies will go after a tumor cell's vulnerability. So if a tumor cell is addicted to EGF, right, a growth factor, we can go in with a the targeted therapy and say, hey, you now no longer have access to this growth factor. Well, the tumor cell can then evolve a mechanism that says, okay, I'll just use another growth factor. And then that drug no longer works. But what it will do when it makes that, evolves that resistance to that drug, is now it uses another protein to do its thing. And that protein is typically a mutated or an overexpressed protein. And so if you come in with an immunotherapy, then you've really said, okay, well, you're going to evolve this resistance. Well, guess what? We've got a T cell waiting right here that's just going to say no. <laughs> and so we can bounce it back and forth between these combination therapies. So I, I absolutely think that combo is really going to be the only way to go in the next decade or three. Okay, we know you're a big fan of kind of science communication because you've been hanging out our podcast for a long time. And Stalking, it was a maybe? Bit, you know, <laughs> always a bridesmaid, never the bride. Well, we tried to fix that today. I appreciate um, the chance. <laughs> on that subject, Arturo would like to know, what do you think is the role of social media in science? We know you're a big fan of Twitter as well. So I think social media and science is huge. We are a community of people who used to only talk to each other through peer-reviewed publications. And that is not the way to do it. We need to be able to, one, share our peer-reviewed publications in a manner that's done quickly. Because there's no way any of us can read the entire PubMed. And then two, we need to be able to discuss it. And while I love all of my colleagues at Moffitt... Um, I need more input. I need more ideas, more things. And so I have people who are in South Africa that I'm discussing breast cancer with. You know, I have people in Europe who, who I'm arguing with evo- about evolution with. You know, and I have all of these things that happen through social media. I mean, wh- why would I not do it? 
Yeah. You know, we're all after the same thing. Every human being on the planet just wants to, to end the suffering. And so let's all get together and do it through social media if we can. You were also the uh, leader of Pint of Science in Tampa this year. How was that as an experience for you? Oh, that was a learning curve. <laughs> um, I learned quite a bit about organizing and, and, and being in team. But I, I really was excited to learn about how the community in general is excited to learn about science. I mean, I understood that I talked to people at different um, kind of social events that weren't kind of science related, that people were into science and had a ton of questions, especially when you mentioned the word cancer, um, because it's affected everybody. But what I learned about the Pine of Science organization um, and, and being a part of it was that there's way more people who are interested in all types of science. And that Discovery Channel isn't just, you know, isn't just Shark Week. There's so many <laughs> things going on and people really care about it. And to the point where they want to come out and ask questions and they'll fight over tickets and they'll be around to do it. Because science is as cool to everyone else as it is to me. Which I thought was kind of my favorite thing that I learned this year. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kim, for taking the time out to come and speak to us. And... You know, we've got the usual pint glass for you somewhere, which we'll present to you at some stage so you can have a nice little collection of those things. Appreciate and, it. And, um, yeah, we, we're glad that you're going to carry on helping us out with Pint of Science and have an awesome time in Ireland. Will do. Thanks for letting me do this again. I hope it was informative. No, it was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. ago um, when I was pregnant with my first child uh, we had two cats and one of our cats went missing and so we put up flyers and we did the the good thing that you do when you look for your cat and the neighbor came over and said um, you guys have a great cat yes and we said yes well I think he's dead in my front yard and so since I was carrying my first child and a little maybe emotional my husband at the time went over and identified the cat yes that's our cat he buried it we went out, we had a little ceremony, and do what you do when you lose a pet. Well, a few weeks later, which was over Christmas, by the way, which made it even a little more strange, we walked into the garage, and there's our cat staring right back at us. <laughs> at first, yes. <laughs> oh, it's a miracle. And then we realized, oh, he buried the wrong cat. <laughs> we have no idea whose cat it was and everything. So I spent about two years telling the story at every, you know, event, every family event. Oh, my, you know, my poor husband, he's an engineer, only knows numbers, you know, he can't, he has no ability to recognize things like a scientist, you know, he's not like me, I would never make that mistake, you know, I'm very good at, at, um, at looking at details and things. And then our other cat went missing. And so we put up flyers and um, neighbor comes over and says, hey, there's a very sick cat, I think I found your cat, your very orange cat is under a bush and he doesn't look very well. I rushed this cat to the vet and um, I think maybe he's eaten some poison or something because he does not look well. He's much more skinny. His hair has gone kind of white although you could still tell he was my orange cat and he's in ICU and the vet is taking as best care of him as he can. He says I'm sorry, you know, your, your cat who's eight years old has kidney failure and all of these issues and did you know that he has diabetes and I'm, oh my goodness no and I'm, literally I go in and I'm petting this cat in ICU and I'm thinking wow he looks so different, yet he still really likes me. I hope he pulls through. 
Next day, neighbor knocks on my door and says, I think you have my cat. He, he's 16, diabetic, and has kidney failure. <laughs> and so now I'm not really allowed to tell that first cat story and make fun of him anymore because I, I definitely ID'd the wrong cat. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in.
Pokici.